If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're only going to be looking at one verse today, that's verse 16. And Paul is answering the most critical question that really anybody has ever asked. What's that critical question? It basically is this, how can a man have a right standing with God? How can a man have a right standing with God? How can a woman have a right standing with God? That is man's greatest dilemma. How how can we as sinners stand before a holy God and be acceptable to Him? How can we have a right standing? You know, Job's friend Bildad asked that in Job 25 verse 4. How then can, this is what he said, how then can a man be just with God? How can a man be just with a holy God? In other words, how can a guilty, condemned sinner, because the Bible is very clear that we're all sinners, be made righteous and thereby acceptable to God? How can that happen? You know, if you think about it, that's what all world religions are trying to answer. Take any world religion, that's the answer. That's what they're moving towards, is how can they seek to be acceptable to their God? What are the things they have to do? What are the things they have to think? How can a man be just with God? Now, we who know the truth know it's found in Jesus Christ. Amen? So we have to go back to Christ's suffering. And I want to cover it very, not quickly, but to get the context. Because before we get to Galatians 2.16, we have to think about what the Lord did on the cross. His sufferings. And many times if you were to ask, well, what were Christ's sufferings? People would talk about, well, the thorns, the crown of thorns. That's part of His suffering. It was the, the robe that was ripped off after the scourging, or the mocking, and the ridicule, and the spitting, and the beating, and the rejection. All those things were part of His suffering. Well, surely the greatest of all was the scourging, which many times killed the man right there. That was part of His suffering. Actually, though, that was not nearly. That, that was just a small amount. If, if, if that's all that's said, that's just a very, very minute amount of what the suffering of the Lord really entailed. The real suffering of Jesus Christ happened from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock when it says darkness filled the earth. That was where the Father... In fact, one man said this, the Father, uh, sent by the Father this darkness to shield Jesus during the hours He was made sin for us. These were the private hours. It is as if God had shut the bronze doors of heaven upon Jesus so that what transpired during those hours happened between Himself, the Father, and Christ alone. That was really the time of greatest suffering. That was the climax of the sep- separation and suffering of Christ with the Father. And it was during that time at the end where he said, what? My God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? What do you mean forsaken? Forsaken in the sense of abandoned by God. Can you imagine that? Abandoned and crushed by God the Father. Christ was on the cross. And that's where he bore the sins of the world. That's where his greatest suffering was. 
He was dying as a substitute for us. Up to that point, if, if He had gone off the cross before the darkness, before that transpired, you'd still be in your sin. But He died for, for us as our substitute. In fact, the idea is this. To Him was imputed our guilt. You'll hear that word imputed a few times today. The guilt of our sins was placed on Him and He suffered and was punished for our sin. Not for His sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God. But the Father poured out in full measure His wrath against His Son for those who would believe in Him. Your sin was placed on the Son at that point. Again, God was punishing His own Son as if Jesus had committed every wicked deed done by every sinner who would ever believe. Every wicked deed by every sinner who would ever believe. They were placed on Christ. Actually, I believe it this way. He, Christ, all right, for the person who ends up in hell, Jesus Christ did not pay for his sin. He paid for those who would believe in Him. Those sins were paid for. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it was your personal sins that were placed on Christ during those three hours. And He did it so that He, he being God the Father, could forgive us and treat us, the redeemed, those who Christ died for, as sons. And treat us as though we were righteous, though we're not, but we stand in Christ's righteousness. I, I always love that, 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 that truth. It's just, He died specifically to rescue those who would believe in Him. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then He died for you. And at the end of that suffering, he cried out, not only, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But just a moments later, he cried out, it is finished. Finished. It is complete. Not partial. Finished. And he died. It says he gave up the ghost. He himself. But there was a big question at the end. I mean, I don't know how many people were thinking this way, but... These are the questions that could have been asked at that point. He's dead. Did Jesus sin during the agony and the torture of the cross? Did he sin? That could be a question that was asked. Well, during all this agony and all this suffering, and did he sin? Did Jesus remain the perfect Lamb of God? Did God accept the sacrifice? Now, obviously, we know the answer. For three days, that question remained unanswered. Think about it. I mean, he, he's dead. For three days. Then the moment came, and God reached down in that cold Judean tomb, and the body of Christ is made alive. He is risen, exalted. And the answer to all those questions is yes. He never sinned. He remained perfect. And God accepted the sacrifice because that's what the, that's what the resurrection proves. It proves that His sacrifice was sufficient and God was pleased. So when we sing about the resurrection, we're saying, thank you, Lord, for accepting, or thank you, Father, for accepting the sacrifice of your Son on our behalf. God has declared by the resurrection that He has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for human sin. 
fact, Romans 4 says this, Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and He was raised because of our justification. That's why when, 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 uh, when we sing about the resurrection, we know that we can be justified. And we're going to be seeing that in a moment. I liked what Michelangelo, years and years, obviously years and years ago, he was telling his fellow uh, artists, and he was quite indignant over all this, by the way. He, this is what he told him. He said, why do you keep filling gallery after gallery with endless pictures of the one theme of Christ in weakness? Christ upon the cross, and most of all, Christ hanging dead. Why do you concentrate upon that passing episode as if he were, it were the last word, as if the curtain dropped down there on disaster and defeat? That dreaded scene lasted only a few hours. But to the unending eternity, Christ is alive. Christ rules. And He triumphs. Why do you keep looking at the dead? We should paint pictures of Him risen. Because He's alive. Only a risen Savior can be a real Savior. We need to focus on, on who He is now. He's the risen Savior. Yes, we should remember all He did. But that was just transition period. He's the risen Savior, and He's the returning Savior. In fact, one man said, Christianity begins where religion ends. Christianity begins where religion ends, with the resurrection. Because no other religion has the resurrection. Only Christianity. So that's why Christ came. Christ did not come and die for, to be a good example or to be a leader. He, he died to be our substitute. He died so that you might be forgiven. He died so that we could be just before God. And that's what we're going to be looking at in Galatians 2. In fact, Galatians 2.16, hopefully you're there. Let me read that for you. Knowing that a man is not justified. Now, I want you to notice these words, this word justified. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You know, if you've been here many weeks, that we're going through Galatians. And, you know, I thought about this, this text. And I thought, well, you know, where am I going to preach as far as for a sun, or a Resurrection Sunday? Should I go to John? Should I, you know, go to Acts? Where should I? Should I go in Hebrews? Where should I go to preach a, a, a resurrection message? And, and the Lord reminded me, that's why I came. Galatians 2.16. That is like the pinnacle of why Jesus Christ came, suffered, and died. So that we might be justified. So I said, well, Lord, we'll just... All right, I'll stay right in the text. I'll stay in the text. And we're going to be looking at justified. That's why Christ came. If, if there was any word that I would want to use for salvation, it's justification. In fact, um, uh, Luther used to say this, justification is the material principle. What he meant by that is, that's the key issue. That's what the whole matter's about, the matter. What is it about? It's about justification. Justification by faith alone. Justification is what it's all about. That's why the Church of Rome and the, and the protesters split was over justification. That is why so many Christians went to be burned alive and drowned because of justification. What does it mean? What did God do to Christ and how are we justified? 
That's what the whole Reformation was about. So let's, let's understand it for today. Well, justification explained. Let me look at the... There's three major points. It's going to be explained. It's going to be shown that it's justification by faith alone. And then I'm going to give you some blessings from justification. So what is justification? Well, notice that this, just this verse alone has the word justified three times. In fact, as we move through the book of Galatians, this is the first time we hear about justified. It's the first time we really hear about the law. And we're introduced to faith, something to do with faith. It's really like the pinnacle of Paul's whole argument. He starts moving right into theology and talking about... Oh, did I just say the word theology? Yes, this is what this is. Hopefully you don't go like this. We're going to hear a theology lesson on Resurrection Sunday. No, we're going to hear about the truths of God. That's what theology is. So this is kind of like the the top of the mountain. Look, and and Paul's saying, listen, let me explain what justification is. Well, the word justify is a court term. It's a judicial act. It's a legal term, a word used in the court of law. It's, It's a word that a judge would use. And most of you have never been maybe to the court of law standing before the judge, but this is what this word is referring to, a person who is standing before a judge. And it's the term justified when the judge, this is what he's referring to, when the judge drops the gavel and pronounces something to that person that's standing before him. And and this is what justification means. That God, God the judge, dropped his verdict of condemnation against us and declared us to be righteous. So he dropped the charge of guilty and then said, and you are not only not guilty, but you are righteous. So he acquitted us of guilt, proclaimed us innocent, and then proclaimed us righteous. That's what that word all has to do. So it's dropping the guilt and proclaiming righteous. The person is righteous. Actually, over the years, I've heard this little phrase, just as, just as if I've never sinned. Have you ever heard, heard that? How many of you heard that? Justification is just as as I've never sinned. Actually, that falls far short of what justification means. Because it's not just dropping the guilt, it's proclaiming Him righteous. Do you see how that, just as if I never sinned? Far short. Well, what's the opposite of proclaiming a person righteous? It would be proclaiming the person guilty and condemned. By the way, God will proclaim one of those two truths to each person that ever lived. For those who never receive His Son, He will pronounce them guilty and condemned to the lake of fire and will be judged at the great right throne judgment. But for those who put their faith in Christ, He pronounces them not only innocent because Christ paid for their sin, but also righteous because of Christ's righteousness. By the way, the word is declared. I want you to see this because... Many would say, well, no, He makes us righteous. Actually, that's not true. He doesn't make us righteous. He ultimately makes us righteous. When would that be? At what? Glorification. That's when you're sinless. What He does is He declares you righteous. There's a huge difference there. Let me give you a little secret. Dale Vance still sins. He almost fell out of his seat. 
Yeah, okay, I don't want to spread gossip, but that is true. But I, but I say this also, that Dale Vance is, has been declared righteous. So he's declared righteous. By the way, Dale is a dear friend of mine. That's why I'm picking on Dale. He has been declared righteous, which means he's a saint, but yet he still sins, which means he's still a sinner. He's a sinner saint. He's declared righteous. Someday he will be made righteous at glorification. I trust you're in that same situation where you have recognized your sin, you have run to Christ in the sacrifice on the cross, you have received Christ, therefore God says, I declare you're acquitted of your guilt and I declare you righteous because you stand in my Son. It is the act of God which He declares a sinner to be righteous because of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Now again, it's an objective standard. In other words, it's not subjective. It's not that I am now totally righteous. It's that God, in a judicial sense, like a judge, says guilt is no more on your shoulders because it's been paid. It's not that you're, you weren't a sinner. You were, you were a vile sinner. You should, have, you should have been condemned. My wrath should be upon you forever. That's what hell is all about. But because Christ paid for your sin and you have received my Son and, you have, and, and you're in Christ in my Son, it's been, it's been acquitted because it's paid for. Always remember, every sin that is ever committed will be paid for. Whether on, with Christ or with the person in hell forever, every sin will be paid for because God is just. God is righteous Himself. So that's what justification is. It's when God acquits a sinner of his sin and declares him to be righteous and the gavel goes down. Forever. Well, let's look at the actual passage and break out a few things. Because it really divides up into three sections. It's very, it's very clear. And it's interesting. Uh, many times I read quite a few commentaries, five or six, you know, seven or eight, whatever. And almost every commentary said exactly the same thing about this particular passage as far as how it breaks out, which is very unusual. You're always... But Paul made it very clear what he was talking about as he approaches the top of this mountain of justification. The first is knowing that a man, the first phrase, the first sentence, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That is a general statement. He's going to look at a general statement, a personal statement, and then a universal statement. That's a general statement. That man. What do you mean a man? Any man. Any man. is No man is ever justified by the works of the law. In other words, the law cannot justify. Only the Lord can justify. Only the Lord can accomplish in our lives that which can take away sin and make us righteous. The law can't do that. And again, this is theology, and I find it so interesting. My heart has been so warm towards Jesus Christ this last week as I've studied this. I just keep going back. Thank you, Lord. Because thank you for, for helping me to escape sometimes even performance-based Christianity. Performance-based where like somehow I'm earning your favor. I can't earn His favor. I can only be in Christ and walking with Him. 
He earns God's favor. The law can't do it. It's interesting, and it, I mean, this is true, that it doesn't, actually, the Greek does not say the law, it says law. There's no definite article, actually, in the Greek. Which means this, he's not just pointing to the Jewish law, although that would be part of it. He's saying any law, any standard out there, any system that tries to, uh, uh, attempts to please God, cannot please God. Anything out there. So it's not just the Jewish law, it might be the Mormon law. And all their rituals. Might be Roman Catholicism and all their sacraments. Might be Islam and all their pillars. No law can justify. General. The works of the law, the deeds of men, they can't, they can't make you acceptable before God. Religions cannot do it. That's all, I mean, that's, Paul would say, you know, religions cannot do it. But Christ can. So how is a man justified? Well, the second part of it. If you're not justified by the works of law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith. Now again, we already know what Christ did. He came, He died. The fury of God was upon Him, especially in those last, well, in those last three hours. The wrath was poured out. Uh, sins were paid for. But now, so what happens? Do, does that mean everybody's saved? Well, no. He says it specifically. By faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in everything that Jesus Christ did on that cross. See, it's not automatic. That's what I'm trying to say. By faith means it's not automatic. Something has to happen in your life to activate forgiveness. To activate you being right before God. Only those whom God unites to His Son, a union that takes place only through the channel of biblical faith. Now, I want you to remember that word channel, because that's how faith is used in Scripture as it pertains to Christ. Faith is the channel that brings forgiveness and righteousness to me. Faith is the channel. It's not the substance. In other words, faith is the means, not the source. See, some might, people say, some might say, well, I have faith. Well, you have faith. Everyone has faith. I'm, certainly I'm saved. No, no, no. It's the channel. I have faith in Jesus Christ. He's the object of our faith. He's the substitute. He's the Savior. So, faith is the channel, the means, not the source of justification. Faith is what? Well, what is faith then? Faith is trust. Faith begins with knowledge. I mean, you know, if you want to break it down, there's a lot of ways to do this, but faith begins with knowledge. You learn. There's some, you know, you learn about your sinfulness. You learn about God's holiness. You learn about Christ's sacrifice. So you learn. Faith is trust in, in something that's true. That's knowledge. It's not blind. It's not blind faith. I hear about blind faith. That's not. Faith is, biblical faith is never blind. Biblical faith is always this is who I am, this is who God is, this is what Christ did, and I want to place my faith in that, in, in a sacrifice. It's not blind. It's, it's built on hope, it's built on facts, so that it is not speculation. In fact, faith stakes its life on the outcome. You guys are all singing, glory to God, hope in heaven. Have you ever seen heaven? You haven't seen heaven. 
It's all based on, faith is based on hope. It stakes its entire outcome on faith and on Christ. So faith is trusting Christ and relying on His promises. That's what we mean by faith. When Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by works of law, but by faith in Christ, he's saying it's faith is knowing, hearing, understanding, being convicted by, and then hoping, trusting in Him. It, it plays out like this for, for John Prince. My only hope is in Jesus Christ. If, if that's wrong, which it is not, <laughs> but I'll just use the if as a hypothetical, if it was wrong, then I'm damned. Because my only hope is in Him. There's none other. Everything else is excluded. It has to be. You can't add Christ. It has to be Christ is exclusive. My hope is in Christ and nothing less. In Jesus' blood and righteousness. So that's what, what he means by, by faith in Jesus Christ. He's not an add-on. He's exclusively the Savior. So it's general. But notice this. Paul says it's not only general, but it's, it's personal. Because even we, this is the second part of verse 16, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. We. So he says, well, yeah, it's general, but it's we. I'm, I'm saved, Paul would say. In fact, I think the we there is talking. Remember, he's really, the whole context is challenging Peter. Remember Peter? He was eating with the Gentiles and then moved away when the Judaizers came. For you who are in the text. <coughs> so Paul, I, I think this is what Paul, Paul's preaching to Peter. Listen, how'd you get saved? Even we believe in Jesus Christ. Peter, come on. Even we believe in... That's how Barnabas got saved. That's how Titus got saved. That's how you got saved. That's how I got saved. Do you see anyone else around here that's saved outside of faith in Jesus Christ? There's no one. It's personal. See, the we means there's... It's not only personal, but it's a commitment. Do you get that? When it says we have believed, in other words, we have turned our hearts and our minds to Christ. It implies commitment, a personal commitment. Not just assenting to some facts concerning Christ, but actually running to Him for refuge and seeking mercy. That's what it's referring to. You know, it's, it's not like, well, you know, I've, I've, periodically I hear that try Jesus. You know, you're having a hard time. Try Jesus. That's not biblical faith. Faith says, I know He's the Savior. I know He's my substitute. I need Him. I don't need anybody else. There's a conviction in the heart. There's a commitment in the soul towards Him. So it's also implied in this commitment that a person will turn his back on all others, all other possibilities of trying to be justified by something else, some other system. So when we come to Christ, we, we reject all other possibilities that man's systems, man's religions are out there. And we say no to those and we say yes to Christ. So it's personal. And then finally, it's universal. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. I mean, he just makes a universal statement. He says, listen, it's not only general, any man, it's not only personal, I've been saved. But he says, listen, if there's anyone out there, it has to be through Christ. 
No. No works of the law. Or, excuse me, for by the works of the law, no flesh. No flesh. That means mankind. You take a person that's in the deep heart of Africa, and he's an animist, or you take a person that's over in uh, Iran, he's a Muslim, <laughs> or you go to Manhattan on Wall Street. Every one of them has to have Christ if they're going to be saved. They're going to be justified. All men. Only one way. And if you're caught in religion, you have to reject that religion. So a Mormon has to turn to Christ. A Jehovah Witness has to turn to Christ. A Hindu has to turn to Christ. A a Muslim would have to turn to Christ alone. A Roman Catholic would have to turn. A Presbyterian would have to turn. A Baptist would have to turn. Are there unsaved Baptists in churches? How about a Bible church? That's what it's all about, right? He's the one. It's, I think sometimes we get... To, and I, I'm a pastor of a church, but I think sometimes we get too sucked into the church thing. Yes, it's about people. And yes, I love you and I love... And God ordains a local church, absolutely. But let's remember, it's, it's all about Him. And, and, and I'm not the shepherd of this church or neither is Lee or any of the other elders. Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. We're just under shepherds. I was, when I was praying, or when I was singing, I was praying, I was just saying, you know, how expendable we are. I just, I said, Lord, you know, if I die today, the church will go on because it's your church. It's not my church. It's not about what I can do or what you can. I mean, yes, I want to serve and I hope that you want to serve the King of Kings. But aren't you so expendable? Aren't we so, so, I mean, we are so in transition and, and um, it's all about him. And anybody wants to get justified, declared righteous, we have to go to him. Well, yeah, the first question might be, has that been true of all time? Is that really true of all time? That any, throughout time, if a person wanted to be justified, made righteous, they had to receive it from God? Yeah, uh, Romans chapter uh, 4. Why don't you just turn there? Keep your hand in Galatians if, if you'd like. Well, actually, I'm not going to be there anymore, so no, you don't have to... Uh, Romans chapter 4, talking about Abraham. Now remember, Abraham lived hundreds of years before the Jewish law. Well, how was Abraham saved? How was Abraham saved? What, verse 1, Romans 4.1, What then shall we say, that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? Has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. I mean, the question, it's a question, not a statement. Well, was he? Well, let's see what it was. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. That's faith. And it was accounted to him. That's imputed. In other words, given to him for righteousness. Go before the law. It wasn't law that saved Abraham. It was the fact he had faith in God. Now, again, remember, Abraham was looking towards the ultimate sacrifice of someday, which was Christ. But still, it was faith. That's what saved Abraham. That's, that's how he was declared righteous, was because uh, he believed God and it was accounted. That's, that word accounting is a uh, mathematical uh, term. It's where you're sitting down and you're counting, you know, and many of you had to go through that. Well, most of all of us did, right? April 15th is right around the corner. And, you know, ding, ding, this is what you owe, or ding, ding, this is what you get back, right? But it's an accounting term. It's a ledger. It's facts. 
This is the truth. This is the fact. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's an, it was accounted to him. It was given to him. It's like a, a, a transfer. Many of you get a, um, uh, you get money back, and it's transferred from the United States government into your checking account, right? At least that's what you're hoping for. And spend it quick because it's devaluing. No, but <laughs> but the point is, is Abraham, when he believed, it was accounted to him, and the righteousness of God was given to his account. So before the law, a man was justified, made righteous by faith. Well, let's let's look at Luke 18 to see. Well, how did people operate under the law? Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 9. Luke 18, 9. This is Jesus. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Now think about this. They trusted in themselves. These were men who trusted in their law and their standard to please God. That they were righteous and despised others. These were law keepers. They were going to make themselves righteous before God. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. (laughs) Thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. You see how righteous this man is in his eyes? He's keeping the law. I'm going to earn my way to heaven. I'm going to earn it by works. Jesus said, well, there's this other guy and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, you can learn a lot from this. He wasn't depending on law. He wasn't depending on his own works. He saw God as holy because he saw himself, what? As a sinner. And he also knew that God was a merciful God. Be merciful to me. God could change him. He couldn't change himself. Now this is Christ. This is during the time, this is still in the Old Testament before Christ died, before Pentecost. I tell you, this man, this tax gatherer, went down to his house house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, i.e. through the law, will be humble. But he who humbles himself, i.e. I can't do it, I, don't, I, need, I need a substitute outside of myself, will be exalted. That's probably the best illustration of justification under the Old Testament law. And spoken by Christ himself. This man who tries to justify himself by works, 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 works. Very proud, arrogant. Looking down at everyone else. And the person who just beat his breast. I, I can't do it. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. If you're in Romans chapter 4, I should have had you keep your hand there. We're going to move. Let me just, let me finish up. We've seen Abraham before the law. We saw the sinner. Thanks, gatherer. Under the law. How about after the law? Well, actually, Paul is given the argument in Romans 4 to show us what we have to do today. Verse 4, Romans 4, 4. Now to him who works, busy, 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 works righteousness, 
do religions, try to please God through your works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, I can't do it, Lord. I can't please you through these religious systems, but believes on him, that's Christ, who justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify the godly. See, religions say you justify the godly. When the person is godly enough, now all of a sudden the stamp of justification is on them. That's exactly what the Roman, Roman Catholicism teaches. You become a saint and then you're stamp justified. That's not what Paul's saying. He's exactly the opposite. God justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted, there again, that word accounted is a legal term, his, his area, his, 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 uh, his, uh, uh, not area, but, uh, ledger. Righteousness. Righteousness. Is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness. Imputes righteousness. Again, how it plays out is Christ died for sinners. And as we place our faith in Him alone, then He, he says, you're acquitted of guilt and you're given Christ's righteousness. So really, actually the death of Christ removes my guilt. But the life of Christ, He lived His perfect life, is the life that we get imputed to our account. It's not just His death on the cross, it's entire his perfections are given to you. It doesn't sound like that's like so way out there. His perfections are given to your account. If you trust in, in the sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus Christ, again, your guilt has been acquitted, forgiven, and declared righteous, declared one of God's sons with all the blessings associated with it. Well, let me very quickly go to the blessings of being justified. You want to be blessed today? Some of us I have a hard time being blessed. I, because I don't think we understand all that God, if you're a Christian, all that God has done for you. And we focus on things that are so immaterial and so do not matter. And if we could just turn our eyes upon Jesus and, and look to Him and to really consider all that He's done and how full your account is. <laughs> How blessed you are. Let me give you four things. First, these are fill-ins, by the way. Oh, by the way, the, the, the number two is justification by faith. Give me the word. Alone. All right, that's good. All right. I'm not really into fill-ins, but some people say, ah, it keeps me with you. Okay, whatever. I like the whole thing laid out. In fact, I like four pages. Just give me it all so I could just like... Okay, but number one, first, we are forgiven, or excuse me, we are forever, not forgiven, forever acquitted of the sentence of condemnation. Forever, forever, forever. If you're in Christ, you are forever. That's why I believe categorically you cannot lose your salvation. How can you lose something that was given to you in the first place? If you think you can lose your salvation, there's something works related. Now, I do believe many people have a false profession. They think they're saved and they have no fruit. It should be obvious. Well, you know. But I'm saying if you've been truly placed in Christ, it's forever. What does Romans 8, 8, 1 say? There is therefore what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, later in that chapter, Romans 8, 
verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? I'll tell you one person who would like to, Satan. But who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. There's that word again. Who is, who is, uh, who is he who condemns? You know, one of God's elect. It is God who died, or it is Christ who died, and for, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. There's no condemnation. Your acquittal is forever. Wrath has been satisfied. And really now, uh, Romans 5 says this, that because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's no more wrath, there's peace. So we're forever acquitted. That's our position. That, number one, is really our position. Another part of our position is, second, we are declared righteous. That's, I'm just using what justified means. Declared righteous in God's sight. Again, Christ's perfect life and perfect uh, sacrifice has been applied to our account. We're declared righteous. We have the righteousness of, of Christ's life and death bestowed upon our account. So, because of justification, we should not allow Satan, the accuser of, our, of the brethren, to torment, torment us with guilt feelings about our forgiven sins. Does Satan ever try to torment you about how you are a sinner? I'll tell you what, when, when that happens, you, you remain in your sin because your focus is on that sin. And yet you have been forgiven for it because you have asked Christ to forgive you not only in a judicial way, but if you've, you know, by the way, you still have to ask forgiveness if we confess our sins. That's a, that's a daily thing because we get our feet dirty. But you know what? Even if you died in a state of not having asked all the sins, you're still forgiven because judicially you have, you have the righteousness of Christ. And I know that gets a little complex, but the bottom line is this. Don't let Satan talk to you. Because we fail, and then sometimes we fail over and over and over again. Why? Because we dwell on our failure, and yet God in Christ would say, well, I've forgiven that. That's what Christ did on the cross. And as I understand justification, it makes me more holy, not less. It doesn't make me more sloppy in my life. It makes me more thankful, saying, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to be holy. I want to be like you. Because I'm not like in the mud. Oh, I'm just a poor sinner. You're not a poor sinner. You're a saved saint. You're a child of God. Let's act like one. You ever tell your kids like that? You know, you're a prince. Act like one. That's, uh, my name is Prince. <laughs> you know, some of you are like, huh? <laughs> you're a Ryan. Act like one. Don't you want him to act like one? All right. Number three, we are assured, assured of our future glorification and inheritance. Because everything is assured and we have the righteousness of Christ, we're assured of glorification and inheritance. That's our future. See, we've looked at our position, okay? <coughs> and we've looked at our account. It's righteous. Now we're looking at our future. It's, it's assured of our future glorification. If you're in Romans 4, just go a few chapters. Romans 8. Romans 8 is huge on this. See, he's really covered a lot on this. But just quickly, I know I'm running out of time. And I was told by the nursery, you have to be done. Because these kids, <laughs> nursery, <laughs> these kids only can last so long. All right, I'm trying. <laughs> I think the penalty is next week I have to do the nursery if I don't. <laughs> verse 29. He foreknew, well, let's go to verse 30. 
just get the point. He foreknew to be conformed to the image. Verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, that's past, that's Eris. He foreknew, that's Eris, that's in the past. He predestined, that's in the past. These also he called, that's in the past. Whom he called, these he also justified, that's in the past. Uh, and whom he justified, these he also glorified, that's in the past. Wait, he just used the past. He said it this way. You've been foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified in the past. How could he say that? You're not glorified. None of you are glorified. You have aches and pains and still in sin. Right? You still do sin. Because, because of your justification and your account says the righteousness of Christ is so sure, Paul puts glorification in the past. Because in God's mind, it is as sure as done. There is no question. Once God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It's as good as done. We are totally secure. That's why Paul can say, what then shall we say to these things? If you go to verse 31, and this is the next verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody can be against us. Nobody can charge anything. In fact, it's so secure. Verse 34, Christ makes intercession for us. The accuser is... Well... I can't believe that you think, you know, the accuser to, to God, that Sola, I mean, look at how, how much, look at how he, she treats him. <laughs> no, she's my wife. Um, and Christ says, yes, Sola is a sinner. Not as bad as he is, but she's a sinner. But my righteousness covers her. No, it's true. Well, that's true, but I mean, you're, you are complete and Christ intercedes for you, intercedes for you. Finally, we are able to do righteousness, okay? Not only are we assured of glorification, but we are able to do righteousness. We were slaves to unrighteousness, now we're slaves to righteousness, Romans says. We are slaves to righteousness. First John 3 says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. If you do righteousness because you're a child of his, because he's the righteous one, and when you became connected with him, now you can do righteousness. I can't do righteousness on my own, but now that I'm in Christ and I'm secure in Christ, think of this, because I'm secure in Christ, I can serve him out of love and not fear. If I didn't have security, I'm, I'm, oh, I better keep working. Better keep working. Otherwise, you know, and it's guilt and it's fear. But if you understand justification, no, I am declared, I am secure, and now I serve out of love. Nothing shall separate me. I'm not doing it to be separated. I'm doing it because I love Him. I trust that you're serving Him out of love. Harry Ironside told the story of an older Christian. And this older Christian was asked to give his testimony. And he told how God had sought him and found him and how God had loved him and called him and saved him and delivered him and cleansed him and healed him. I mean, he just went on and on and God, God, God. Isn't that how you feel as far as a saved person? God. But after the meeting, a rather legalistic Christian took him aside and criticized his testimony. I appreciate all that you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything that, you're, that was your part. Salvation is really a part of us and a part of God. You should have mentioned something about your part. 
Oh, yes, the older Christian said. I apologize for that. I really should have said something about my part. Uh, My part was running away. And his part was running after me until he caught me. That was our part. What do we bring to salvation? We bring our sin. We bring our hatred and our anger towards God Himself. We ran. It said that we were alienated. It said that we were enemies of God. But God, in His great love and mercy towards us, before we were even saved, pursued us. And it is by mercy, by grace, that we are saved. It's not that I got smart and started working, 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 and then earned righteousness. It's that I finally realized I am a sinner. God is holy, and that sin condemns me, and His wrath was upon me. And I learned that Jesus Christ died for sinners. That Jesus Christ died for me, and I put my whole faith and trust in Him. And at that moment I did, because I wasn't working, I wasn't going to work for my salvation, I was acquitted of my sin, and I was given Christ's righteousness, and I was declared justified. And the question is, have you been justified? Have you recognized your sin, that it's an affront to a holy God, and that God loved you so much that He sent His Son to die for you, and that you need to put your full faith and trust and reliance in Christ, repenting of any other directions that you were going in, any other hopes that you had, and your full faith and trust and reliance on Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. Have you done that? If you haven't, you can do it right where you are. Go to God. Tell Him that you're a sinner. Tell Him that only through Christ could you ever be forgiven and you want to receive His Son. As many as received Him, to them He gave the power to be children of God. Right? That's what John says. To those who recognize their sin and recognize Christ's sacrifice and receive Him, to those He justifies and makes and, be, and, and, and allows them to become His children. You want to become a child of God? Receive Christ. Let's stand as we worship the King of Kings.